welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. In today's podcast, I'm talking with Derek Hull, who has a wealth of knowledge in many areas of the hairdressing industry. Amongst other things, we will discuss the salon membership business model, the changing employee business models, the legal definitions that determine whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor, the laws around employee deductions, service charges or product charges, and the changing professional retail model. Although today's guest is from the United States, most of what we discuss is relevant no matter where your business is based. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. My guest today is Derek Hull from Salon Ops, which is a US-based salon coaching and consultancy business. Derek is not a hairdresser, but with his wife, Stephanie, who is a hairdresser and used to have her own salons, they started Salon Ops. But the thing that makes me listen to Derek's opinions on employment law, etc., is that he was president of a labor union for over 20 years. So in an industry that is often accused of misunderstanding of employment laws, if you want to get the correct interpretations, he's a very reliable place to start. So welcome to the show, Derek. Hey, Anthony. Great to be on. Been following you for a while. Um, this is exciting stuff. And uh, I look forward to giving some helpful advice to your audience. Well, thank you. It's a, a real pleasure to have you here, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to join us today. Um, right, I want to jump straight in the deep end there and uh, and ask you uh, the obvious question. You know, you're not you're not a hairdresser. Uh, that wasn't your original background. But um, what made you start this business? So, as you said earlier, um, I was the president of a labor union. So, I'll give you a little bit of a background on myself. I was a uh, Marine for six years, combat Marine. And um, after the Marine Corps, I joined a labor union, uh, worked my way up to becoming the president of the International Union. And uh, when it was time to take an early retirement to go into other businesses, um, I pulled my money out uh, to uh, look at other businesses. My wife already owned two hair salons, um, was working herself to death behind a chair. And just to keep the doors open a lot of months, some months were profitable, others weren't. But basically, it was to keep the employees in the job versus us making any profit on the salon. So when I retired, I said, let's look at other business models. And um, uh, I looked around at some different businesses to purchase. One was a health club. The health club had uh, memberships. And a light bulb went off in my head to, to say, hey, why, why aren't we doing memberships in salons? And uh, so I developed the systems behind it coming from a business background and uh, went into our salons and said, we're going to implement this. Those who aren't comfortable with it can walk away. Those who are comfortable with it. We're going to start this and by the numbers on paper and math, you'll make more money if you stick with it. So we implemented that versus buying into other businesses and uh, became very successful with it. Our first salon it was nine chairs, had 800 and something members doing about $100,000 a month on nine chairs. And all the stylists made considerably more money um, based on the membership system. So that's how we got started in the business. Then we were approached by some, some of the bigger corporate companies to go and educate. And in, in another kind of light bulb went off in our head was to do it on our own. I didn't want to be tied into one company in the industry. So, um, you know, so, so that's what we did. And uh, we started Salon Ops. Um, I guess we're now going on roughly eight years, eight to 10 years, somewhere in that area. And uh, we coach all over the world in memberships, management, and uh, advertising. So that's, that, that's the basis of how we got started. Okay. So talk to me a bit more about the whole membership thing. You said you had like 800 members. So what, so what were they doing? They, they were, it's, it's like the gym model, like you're paying a, a monthly, a fixed monthly amount that's a direct debit from your bank account into your bank account. Is that, that's essentially the model we're talking? 
that that's pretty much the model. Um, we started trying different models, such as limiting the service. Some people that are doing memberships, some of them are trying uh, two blowouts a month or whatever. Um, we tried that in the beginning. Um, it wasn't successful. Then we went to the unlimited model, which is just like a gym membership. You go whenever you want for whatever level of membership you've purchased, right? You could have a blow dry membership, a color membership, whatever that is. Yep. And it comes out of, out of their account automatically every month. Um, there's a contract they generally sign for between six and 12 months. Um, you know, some, some of countries outside of the United States, you have to uh, allow the customer out of a contract. So we've developed some contractual wording that um, allows that, but allows the salon to recoup any money they might lose by that client moving out of the membership. Um, you know, it's kind of kind of the secret, one of the secret sauces, right? So if they're paying a monthly fee and let's say they had a thousand dollars in services, but their membership fees have only been six hundred, then to get out of the contract, they have to pay the additional four hundred dollars. Right. Okay. So I mean, when you transferred the, the salon business model over to a membership thing, what, what sort of challenges did you run into, first of all, with the clients, and then secondly, with the staff? What, what are the, what's the upside? What's the downside of it? Yeah, so the challenges were just normal challenges. There is really no downside. Um, I can tell you the challenges, though. The challenges at first were, of course, um, stylists are always skeptical of change, right? Any yeah. change and they generally run around with their hands up in the air, like the place is on fire. Uh, <laughs> but, but us as owners know that if we want to become profitable, we have to make change because the old business model of running a salon is broken. So on the client side, um, at first the clients were skeptical. Now, now we're going back to, um, Oh gosh, quite a few years ago. And in, in the US, there were no salon memberships when we started it. Um, so we're kind of kind of um, you know breaching a new frontier, right? Yeah. I mean, now if you look at the United States through our coaching and through other companies, there's hundreds and hundreds of salons uh, doing memberships per, uh, per se in their salons. So in the infancy, though, um, clients were skeptical, and you might even run into this starting a membership saying, "Wow, this sounds like too good of a deal." How, you know, clients like to get in your business, so how are you going to keep the do doors open? All, all of those types of things. Yeah, and just like any industry, it's built on volume, right? So the pricing has to be done proper, the volume has to be proper, and if it is, then you know, doing over a thirty percent profit margin is fairly common for all of our coaching clients. Okay, over a 30% profit margin. That's phenomenal. Um, how do you pay the staff when it's an, a, mem a membership uh, model? Are they paid some sort of salary or are they still, you know, incentivized with some sort of commission or bonus? What's the, the sort of structure so, around that? Yeah, so it's a hybrid. Look, we've got clients. We don't, when we coach, we never tell a client they have to do something. We work with them on the problems they have. And if they break something, we fix it, right? So I've got, Places that use commission, and you can use commission with memberships. The problem with it is the tracking of it, um, and if a client jumps to another team member. So if it was up to us, which we coach, is to give them a base salary, an hourly rate, and then a bonus on top of that. There's actually two bonuses. There's one where they give themselves automatic raises by the amount of clients they sign up, and there's a secondary bonus that the stylist gets the sign-up fee um, now, by a sign-up fee, the membership, let's say it's 12 months, there's actually 13 payments, just like a gym membership. You have the initiation fee and then yeah. 12 additional payments. So the initiation fee is generally, let's say the membership is $100 a month, that initiation fee would be $100 or £100, whatever. Um, and that would be paid to the stylist, kind of a sales incentive or a spiff. Right. Okay. And... Oh. It's it's an optional thing. Like it's not a case of every single client is a member. Some of them take a membership program out. Some of them, again, just like going to the gym, you you might have a, a gym membership where you get a you know a one off visit if you're in town. You know you pay X dollars. So it's it's like that for the salon membership. Is it? You don't have to have a membership. You can be a member, which is better for the client financially. I'm assuming, or not be a member, so you can just dip in and out as you see. Correct. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we would have our memberships and then a la carte pricing, we would call it, which was your standard pricing. Yeah. Now, 
in the beginning, you know, till you build your membership ship up to capacity, those rates might change back and forth as to how many members, how many, how many paying clients. But um, after the salon is fully established into a membership, generally it runs about 80% members, 20% non-members. Okay. Um, and we've got all those numbers. I mean, the math proves out. Although a membership might sound cheaper, I'll give you, this is the really big secret for salon owners. And this is very confidential, uh, you know, for, for your members is that I'll give you a scenario. The member's paying $100 a month for a membership. Okay? Yeah. Okay. So that's $1,300 for the year for that client. Yeah. Now that client's in a cut color and blowout club. Okay. Yeah. Now by color, I mean single process. Yeah. Um, you know, or touch up. Um, that client typically would come in six and a half to seven times a year. Okay. And would spend roughly a hundred, roughly about the same, a hundred dollars, maybe $120 a month. Yeah. But let's say that number throughout the year comes out to $800 for the year they've spent. And that that's typical of any country. The average client comes in roughly seven times a year. Okay. Yeah. Unless they're a man who's getting quick, you know, uh, shape ups. But if we're using a color, color scenario, that's the math. So now you got $800 versus $1,300. And yet the client perceives the membership is cheaper. Okay. So when you're so selling that, them, when you're selling them the membership, are you saying are you saying to them, um, you know, normally it would be X, but if you buy a membership, you get it at X minus Y. No, I mean, so so the the sales technique for a membership is not on price, right? Okay, um, it's on it's on value, it's on um, being able to come in whenever you want, right? Unlimited. Yep. So we use Susie as Susie is the client. Susie, you know, you're in here for your color all the time. You come for once in a while for a blowout. What if I were to tell you we have this great membership now and you can come in as often as you want? Susie will say, well, wow, that sounds great, right? So yeah, think about it. You could come in on, you go out on a Friday night and come in, stop in for a quick blowout and, and go. And it's included in your membership. So they perceive it as they could be there every day and technically they could, right? Yeah. But we know that the math, that's not the math. Um, we've been doing this for over 10 years. And the math says that that client is going to use an average of two service hours a month. Not serve. They're not going to come twice. We base everything on hours, right? It could be four blowouts at a half hour. It could be a combination of a color and a blowout, two hours, something like that. But that client is going to use two hours of service a month. And that helps us with pricing out the membership models. Okay. Do you, do you have, I know someone else who I've also interviewed for a podcast and it will come out, uh, it'll actually come out before this one comes out. So you might want to check that out as well. It's, it's by a young lady. She's actually American, but she lives in London uh, and she's got a color business called Skylar London. And she also has a membership model, but she does three different levels. Um, and I'm not mm -hmm. going to remember what they're called, but for example, it's a gold, silver or bronze membership. And, yeah. you know, for the bronze membership, you, you, you get X, but for the gold one, you get, you know, you get X plus, 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 plus. Um, is it, do you do something like that or, or not? So, yeah. So, so the typical salon has four to five memberships um, and each one is an upsell membership. Yeah. Um, so if you're a salon owner and you want to have a blow dry membership, Typically, you don't want that client in there for the blow-dry membership only. You want them to upscale into the next membership, whatever that might be, right? So we generally, when we're coaching, we tell clients that, or salon owners, that this is your upsell membership. This is your way of getting that client in the door because they can't afford to get blowouts at their normal salon on a regular basis. So this is the way to scalp clients. Look, this business, we have three salons for every thousand clients. So if you're getting a client, They've already been somewhere. So you have to create a divorce scenario with that client, right? The first time they have a bad, bad experience or, or, or it's a price issue, you've got to be there in front of them all the time. So we pull them into the blowout membership. And then we might say, hey, Susie, um, you know, while you're here, let's throw the single process on your head. If you like it, I'll waive the fees for today and we'll upgrade your membership. That kind of thing. So, you know, you have these different levels of membership all the way up to the top one. And the way you sell these also is by creating them as VIP memberships. You don't want them to be like a factory. Yeah. If they're treated like a factory, 
That's the experience. If you treat them like a VIP through these memberships and you send out email blasts saying, hey, it's member only night at the salon. You come in, wine, cheese, and we're going to have a psychic read or whatever that case might be. You give them something more than the regular client so that the regular client wants to jump into a membership. Hey, I want to be a VIP, right? So it makes them, it takes it up that next level and gives you a unique selling uh, a proposition, you know, a USP as we call it in advertising, okay. right? Yep. So, yep. and you have to set yourself aside as being unique aside from just cutting and coloring yep. because every stylist out there cuts and colors, correct? Yeah. You know, they all say they're the greatest, but how do you sell that to a client who just heard it from somebody else? This puts you in a very good position to have a marketing tool by just saying, have you heard about our memberships? And that's something you don't hear. Yeah, exactly. Okay, very good, very good. Uh, I'm fascinated by them, and I, I, I definitely – it's interesting that you came at, at this from outside the industry, and I'm often saying that to people, that if you just look at what's going on inside this industry, you'll just be doing what everyone else is doing, and the only hope is that you do it better. So what you need to do is you need to look outside this industry and what's going on and, you know, hospitality or car rental or retail or restaurants or whatever, so that you see different ways of doing things. That was interesting. The trigger for this for you was going to a, did you say it was to a health spa? Yeah. So no, it was actually a a gym franchise. Yeah. Um, Here in the United States, I knew the owner and they were charging very low rates, like say $19 a month. Yeah. uh, It just amazed me that a million dollar business would be able to keep the doors open at $19 a month. And, you know, they explained the theory behind it, and which is breakage, right? Sure. And it's yeah. all about breakage. How yeah. many people are paying and how many people are not using the membership? Yeah. And, you know, it was a leap of faith because nobody was doing it in the salon industry. So we had to do it and then create those numbers and adjust as we were going. What is the frequency of visit for a member? Um, for instance, you know, and, and what's our hourly cost of operating the salon plus profit? And how do we build that and then figure out our membership pricing? So those are all important points that have to go into a membership. Don't ever do a membership and just copy what your neighbor is doing. You have to look, like you said, you look outside the industry, okay? Typically, the salon industry is, I would say they're about 10 years behind the curve in marketing and, and management of uh, the business. Um, there's some companies out there now for technology, you know, in our POSs that are just starting to touch on marketing with text messaging and emails, but really the marketing is not there. You know, one of our things we teach is a marketing funnel and we've used this outside of the industry. Now that marketing funnel basically takes them from a Facebook or a Google ad. Okay. Which a lot of salons do. Yeah. But then they do those clicks and they wait around for the customer to come in. A proper marketing funnel should be a click on those to a landing page. A landing page is a secret website in, uh, a website page inside your website that collects their data, including their phone number, as long as it's GDR compliant, right, in your area, not here, but there. Um, it collects that data, then puts them in an email marketing program that sends the coupon. And then at the same time, their, e- their phone number is uploaded to a Google Sheet, which is very easy to do. And your front desk gets on and says, hey, Susie, I saw you just downloaded our coupon. We'd like to get you in the salon for your first appointment. That's personal connection marketing. It's not waiting around for clicks. That's something outside of the industry that hasn't really been done in the industry. Now, we coach that as you know one of our platforms. We've got a lot of technology that we put in place that the salon POS systems don't do. We've got a separate company called Presence IQ, which is a full-blown marketing suite for salons and spas um, that does everything from Google marketing to web pages to everything for $197 a month for five different software platforms. Okay. So we, we had to do that because our coaching was lacking on the marketing side, not from our knowledge, but from the tools available. Mm. So getting back to our original thing, saying that the salon industry is behind the lag with marketing. They do great marketing for product, but for the salon owner, all we have is these POS systems, which are just basically appointment takers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Getting back to the membership thing, just one last thing I want to ask on that. Uh, How did that impact on client retention? So membership has typically about a 5% drop-off on a yearly basis. So out of 800 members, you might expect a 5% drop-off. 
But in that particular salon, the 5% didn't matter because we were signing that up in a month as new clients anyway, new memberships. And okay. we were at capacity members on nine chairs. We were right. a little okay. over. Just don't forget we had 20% non-members. So you're looking at, say, a thousand regulars on a monthly basis, right? So the volume was just incredible. Yeah. We had three, on nine chairs, we had three full-time front desk staff working all the time. Yeah. Plus three shampoo assistants. Um, just it, it's it's just great. Now, yeah. if you put the pay systems and everything in place and they're proper, which should be at thirty eight percent or under of your total gross revenue, right? Some people say forty two percent. That that's the number. Your payroll has to be out if you want to be a profitable salon. Um, you know, you and I had talked about this previously. A salon runs roughly at fifty percent. The 52% is what it costs just to keep the doors open between rent and all the other things. So if you're offering a stylist 50%, you're now negative, right? You're not making yeah. any money. So that exactly. number has to be center under. And that's, you know, like you said, it's universal wherever you are. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. Uh, and that's what you mean when you say the business model is broken. Um, just just to, one last thing. I'm, I know I'm hanging on that membership thing, but this is a question that I know, uh, I think I already know the answer to it. Uh, and that is, when you've got clients on a membership thing and a stylist leaves, what impact does that have on the business? As in, when they're not on a membership system, a lot of the clients will go with them you've experienced both. So membership and non-membership. Let's just t tell me what the impact that is when you've got people on membership as opposed to clients not on membership. What's the difference that the impact that has when there's a staff walkout or not necessarily walkout, just one staff member leaves? What percentage of their clients are, are going to go with them versus stay in the salon? Yeah, yeah. So this is probably the biggest benefit of membership aside from how, obviously you have the monthly income guaranteed, right? You wake up in the morning, the money's in your account, but with regard to stylists and um, followings here in the States. And, you know, I've also coached other places. It's always the same. The stylists think that the clients are theirs. They own the client, right? And I'm going to hold the owner hostage and walk out with my, my clients, not the salon's clients, my clients. I hear my all the time. And that's kind of what fueled the booth rental industry too. Um, yep. So the benefit of a membership is the client's under contract with the salon, not the stylist. So you now control the client. Okay. So if a stylist walks out, the client can certainly get out of the contract by paying a whole lot of money, right? Yep. Or if you've already used a proper pay system, which should be a base pay plus, plus bonuses, the whole team shares those clients. So now you have a team atmosphere with a membership locking the client in. So if a stylist leaves, typically only a 10%, 10% of their clients will go with them and pay their fee off on the, on the uh, contract. And that was the problem. My wife used to come home a lot and say, oh my God, they're in the break room again. I'm going to have a mutiny, yeah. you know, and, and constantly living in fear. And that was one of the, one of the things that precipitated putting a membership together was not dealing with that anymore. I would not be held hostage in my own business when I'm paying the bills, right? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. so, yeah. so we created that, and um, you know, we've had clients that we coach that have had full staff walkouts, yet they had a full clientele ready to go. So, and they also had a list of resumes because the stylist and the membership system really clean up. Not only just on pay, but their tips are typically double because. Um, the client perceives themselves as not spending any money, right? So they almost feel guilty to not tip more or buy more product in the salon. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, it's kind of a win-win scenario all the way around. Okay. Um, the best membership that we've taught is product memberships. Don't just think of it for clientele, right? Think yeah. of it for product. Okay. Typically, we're always pushing for pieces per client, right? For... Um, for the clients to buy and the stylist, they have their goals. Yeah. In this scenario, all we have to do is sell one time and we sold 24 pieces of product for the year. So what so, I mean by that is yeah. typically in that membership, you may sell two products a month that they get automatically. They pick their two favorite products every month, like Harry's Shave Club. And they, when they get in a salon, they grab those two pieces and they go. And it's already been prepaid. Okay, so that's a separate membership, or that's a that's an upgrade on an existing membership to include product. An upgrade, an add-on, whatever you can have it as a separate membership, even for non-members that they just want the product membership. 
Yeah. But the beauty to the stocks is they sell it one time. They get a bonus on it. And then every month, the salon gets rid of two pieces of product. So the product is moving on a tremendous basis. Sure. Okay. Very interesting. Um, and independent contractors, uh, from your uh, background again, um, you know, t- t- talk to us about what you think is driving the independent contractor movement. Now, just just to preface this, um, you know, probably fifty percent of the audience listening to this are in the US. The other fifty percent are sort of spread around Canada, the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And what they won't be aware of is how the independent contract movement, especially the salon suite and booth rental thing, is very, very strong on the West Coast, California um, of the United States. But it is not so strong. In fact, I believe it's even uh, illegal in some states on the East Coast. So it's not a, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all, but there is a, 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 a definite movement everywhere in the world as, as uh, part of this sort of gig economy, that there is more and more growth than the independent contractor. Uh, talk to us about that. What do, what do you think is driving it? What the upside is? What the downside is? What's working? What's not working? So, so I can tell you what's driving it is um, two, probably two things. Number one, owners who are bouncing paychecks and not knowing how to run their salon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trying to pay 60% commission when it's not realistic. And, and you know, look, right now, 90% of salons in the United States are in trouble to keep their doors open. If the owner broke their leg tomorrow, the doors would probably close because mm-hmm. they're keeping the doors open. I was in that situation with my wife, right? Um, so that's one of the things. It's fear. It's fear. Um, is my paycheck going to clear? Are the doors going to stay open? Um, and am I making what I think I should be making? Um, so it's fear education based too, because a lot of owners don't educate their staff on the real numbers of what it costs to keep the doors open. And, and that should be something I have no problem sharing with my staff. This is what it costs to keep the doors open, you know, and I'm entitled to a profit because I'm the owner. I made the initial investment and my staff understood that. Okay, so that's the education side and the fear side. Now, on the on the other side, it's freedom of time, Um, especially here uh, or actually everywhere. Now, now that we are so busy, involved in work and other things, um, our society in general is just constant, constantly on the go. Right. There's no downtime. So a lot of the stylists are looking to set their own schedules. It might be later in the day, earlier in the day, but call their own hours and book their own book. Um, so now with the suites opening, uh, which is just basically a mini salon, right? A one chair salon, um, they're moving into that. Now the downside to them moving it, well, it's twofold for us owners. It's tough, right? To recruit employees, um, because you have this going on. Um, secondly, the downside for the suite renter is that they don't realize the numbers the same as a salon owner didn't realize the numbers. They've never been taught the numbers. So we've got, we've actually got coaching clients who are now suite renters who are probably the, the top tier ones who say, not only am I a suite renter, but now I want to move up into owning my own salon, right? So they, we coach them on being a business owner. But most suite renters get in there thinking they're going to make all the money, and that's just not the way it works. You actually, if you're up making $1,500, if your book is $1,500 or less a, a week, you'll actually make less money in a suite than you could make in a salon. And that's just the numbers. It's a fact. Um, you know, we did a math scenario where at that $1,500, that stylist might be taking home $600 in a salon, but in their suite, they'd be taking home $300 after paying everything legally, their rent, their taxes, all that stuff. So um, that's why I say, now maybe if you have a $5,000 a week book, um, then it might be, behoove you to do that. But that's not the average um, technician or stylist. The average is $1,500 a week. I'm sure in the UK, it's probably 1,500 pounds a week. Um, you know, it, it's pretty universal. Yeah, and business that's all is business. right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, from, a, from a salon owner's point of view, uh, I'll often get asked questions about um, how effective are non-compete and restraint of trade contracts, et cetera, you know, non-solicitation especially in this age of uh, social media, whereas it used to be, you know, that you just uh, didn't give them access past a certain level on the computer. You know, you'd lock away the color cards or whatever you had as, as physical things. 
at the end of the day. But these days with social media, it is very much a different scenario for a salon owner to try and bring of the salon. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. How, how effective are non-competes, non-solicitation, restraint of trade, whatever you want to call them, those sort of contracts? So I'll tell you here in the States, now the UK might be different. I'm, I'm just going to base my experience on here in the States. It's state by state. Okay. So, so there's two pieces to that. There's the non-compete and then there's the non-solicitation. Non-competes are very difficult to hold an employee under because most courts here will look at it as um, you're taking away their right to work. Yep. Now, I've had certain states, I've had them hold up within a small radius of the salon. If generally here, it's seven miles. Yep. Um, they've held up. But there are a lot of states that are now making them illegal. California has made them illegal, a couple other states. But what they haven't made illegal or done away with is non-solicitation uh, contracts. Right. So that's the part that you need to make very beefed up about your social media and solicitation. Because if you have clients leaving and you can go on their social media and see that they've been talking to those clients, you've got a very, very strong case in a small claims court to get them to pay you money or, and, and or leave their new employer. Um, so I, if, if I were to give advice now, I'd say forget about the non-competes and go strictly over to non-solicitations. You can also have contracts, and I know you and I went back and forth on this a way, long time ago, where they have to repay you for cert certain things, yeah. um, such as education and things like that. That'll hold up in court. But basically saying they're not allowed to work anymore in the industry, you know, I've had owners try 20 miles. It's not going to fly. Yeah, no, it's exactly. Not going yeah, yeah. I, th I think that you know, and and rightly so. I think that uh, if you're deemed to be stopping someone from earning a living, then yeah, it shouldn't fly. But I mean, in my experience, it was always as long as the um, the radius, um, you know, that you were expecting was was uh, and the time frame that you were expecting was reasonable. Otherwise, the, the, the law will always you know side with the employee, not with the employer. If you're seen to be trying to stop someone from, from making a living. Um, obviously, that varies a little bit from country to country. And, and as yeah. you touched on, it varies from state to state even, doesn't it? Um, right. you, you know, like I, I know, for example, in, in New Jersey, you have quite different laws there, don't you, about uh, booth rental, for example, and uh, salon suites, very different laws there to what you would have on the West Coast, yeah? Correct. Here in New Jersey, booth rental is, is illegal. Um, California, obviously, it, it was illegal. California is now making a change. Um, there's been some drastic changes in California of reclassifying employees as, as, you know, as employees versus booth renters if they're performing the same services inside of that business. Um, so there's a lot of change going on all the time. New Jersey just allowed um, these new salon suites to open, even though they're not allowing booth renters. So, you know, there's a market chain everywhere. The big corporations have money to get things passed legally, like these salon suites. Um, it's going to happen. What an owner needs to do is focus on their own business, not focus on the competition. Yeah, okay? I agree. If you yeah. focus on your own business, you know, in, in the Marine Corps, we used to call it front sight focus. When you're looking down the barrel of your rifle, you forget about everything that's going on around you, right? <laughs> and that's how an owner has to operate. They have yeah. to operate with that such intensity and focus. And their business has got to be that focus because they're accountable to somebody. They're accountable to themselves, their family, or somebody else to keep those business doors open, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's got to be the focus. Forget about what Joe's doing around the corner or whatever. If you get a proper education on how to run your business and you run it focused, you will succeed. If you run it like everybody else, focusing on what they're doing, you're just going to get on a hamster hamster wheel of failure. Yeah, exactly. What um, when we talk about independent contractors, you know, booth renters, etc. Uh, what's the most common misunderstanding of what constitutes an independent contractor or, or booth renter? But booth yeah, renter so, so, for our for our Australian and UK audience, when we talk about booth renters, we we would normally refer to them as rent a chair. Yeah, yeah. So so right, booth renters and um, we'll call them suite suite owners. It's one and the same. It's just a different location. What has happened here in the states, and it's happened other places that I coach, is because they're renting a chair, they don't look over that person, or they don't. 
they treat them as an employee, even though they're not an employee, right? Yeah. Um, but for a proper independent contractor, booth renter, suite renter, whatever you want to call it, they have to have their own license, their own insurance, they have to collect their own money, and they have to set their own hours. If you go outside of any of those boundaries, they're now an employee, period. And, and that's what a lot of the owners don't understand. They try and skirt that by saying, setting their hours, telling them what products they have to use, um, taking the pay at the front desk and then paying them out. All illegal, period. I don't care where you are. Yeah. It's, okay? it's, that makes them an employee versus a contractor. Yeah, it's it's not dissimilar elsewhere that, you know, there's, there's there seems to be a bit of a blind eye to turn to, to what some of the definitions are. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it is really quite clear and quite simple what the criteria is as to, you know, what determines whether they're an employee or not. And I know a lot of salon owners get caught out with some of that stuff. Um, another area that people get caught out on a lot is uh, deductions as in taking uh, a back bar charges or service charges or, you know, charges for product or for assistance or any of that sort of stuff. So talk to us a little bit about that from a, you know, a legal perspective, what you can and what you can't do. So from a legal perspective here in the States now, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the UK and Australia, Canada is very similar. Um, you cannot deduct after pay. So it's, Sounds funny. It's semantics, right? You can deduct before pay if it's in writing, okay, when calculating their payroll. If you calculate their hourly rate and then deduct after the pay is calculated, it's illegal. So it's kind of it's kind of a weird thing. My theory behind it is just pay them what they're supposed to be paid. Figure out those deductions. Figure out what your business costs to run and, and do it before you even give them what they're going to be paid, right? Yeah. So back bar charge theoretically is illegal. Okay. Um, you know, I've got clients that say you're going to in written agreement that says you get 50% commission minus 14% for backlog. So really you're just calculating it beforehand, right? Yeah. It was already notified to them. In that case, you skirt the law. Is it right? No, just say you're giving them the lesser percentage. Yeah. It makes exactly. more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It just seems to be overly complicating it. And the hairdresser on the other end of it just sees a bigger number. And they think, oh, I'm getting 50% or 55%, but they're not actually getting 50 or 55%. They're getting 50 or 55% or whatever the, the number is after a, uh, a product charge or a service charge or a back bar charge or yeah. whatever they are, the fancy name is that they, they come up with. So, the, yeah, I agree with you. Just, what, what was that? I said, by the end, it's got to be under the 40% yeah. to survive. That's why the owner's doing it. You just give them the numbers up front, right? Yeah. Show them your numbers. You know, you don't have to show them your profit. Show them what it costs without payroll just to keep the doors open. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a great that, believer that in that. Yeah. It's much more sense to me. Yeah. Um, what about the, the retail side of the industry? There's been a lot of changes in uh, the professional retail model. And... Um, you know, I've been in the industry since um, 1978. So, you know, a lot of people forget that the professional retail side of the industry really didn't start in earnest until the 70s, pretty much. So it hasn't been yeah. around forever. And there is no guarantee that it will be around forever. But talk about the professional salon retail uh, business model and how that's evolving and, and how you see salons should um, respond or could respond to that so that it still becomes a, you know, a viable, profitable part of their business. Sure. So, you, you know, you and I both know the problems with retail right now from the perspective of a salon owner and is that the industry is selling us out. That's their perspective, right? That they're going on Amazon, they're selling directly to Amazon, they're skirting around us. And, and that that is a problem and it's not a problem. You know, things change, they go full circle. Eventually you'll see new product lines pop up in the salons. The product lines that have been with salon owners for a while are going to re-gear themselves to put more into that, more towards education and things like that. So, you know, you, you have the manufacturer look at it and the look from the salon owner. And right now they're against each other. But there are solutions out there. I mentioned one earlier, product memberships, um, working with companies that are willing to work with you, um, not just on selling the product, but having your business work, right? I know, yeah. I know you've done some work with John Paul 
um, you know, with Paul Mitchell and, um, they, you know, they've kind of retooled their model a little bit. Um, they're more focused than some of the other ones that are directly like going right in bed with Amazon. Um, you know, private label is another uh, big avenue you can, you can explore. You can have multiple product lines in your salon. One might be private label. One might be a high-end brand. One might be a middle-end brand. But you've got those products. Now you have to sell them. Okay, to sell them, the two best ways I see right now for selling is, well, there's three. Education, you got to educate your client. It's always been that way. Don't sell it, educate it. If you educate it, they'll use it. Um, the next one's product memberships. Sell it once, forget it, sold all year long. Yep. I mean, there's been billion-dollar companies like Harry Shave Club built on that, where you get your razors every month automatically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the third one is I'm working with a company right now that is uh, it's a free software platform. Um, so you might don't know if it's available in the UK yet. I think it's going to be soon. I know some other countries it's available, especially in the United States, and that's called um, Salon Interactive. Salon Interactive is a um, basically an Amazon killer. It's a, the exact same model as Amazon, but directly from the salon. So what they do is they warehouse the product from all the distributors in the United States. And if a client needs a product, if you don't have the stock, you can sell the product and it'll be at their doorstep in the next day or two, just like Amazon. Right. Um, and because you're not stocking the inventory and now you have your own online store, it allows you to compete. So, so, so what is the difference between that? Because as you mentioned, I do stuff with, with, with Paul Mitchell and uh, Paul Mitchell sell uh, their product through Amazon in the US. And I don't have a problem with it because it is at the same uh, recommended retail price that salons can, can sell it for. So, it, so now I think that when they do that, that the pendulum swings back the other way because it was always about the client saying, in theory anyway, uh, that I can get it cheaper on Amazon. Well, you know, Paul Mitchell now sells through Amazon, but on the condition that Amazon sell it at recommended retail price. So now I see the pendulum swings back towards the uh, salon having the benefit because it's more convenient to buy it while they're in the salon. And if you combine that with your idea about the product membership thing, you know, I, I think that's a, you know, a fantastic idea that I would definitely, if I had a salon, I'd certainly look into that. It's a win-win. I have um, a salon out in Washington that is doing 30% right now on product to service sales, yep. doing the memberships. So, and once you sell the membership, it's guaranteed, right? It's yeah. one time and you're done for the year. You sold 24 pieces of product. I mean, you know, you could theoretically discount that product depending on the manufacturer's rules, right? You yeah. might discount it by 20%. Now you're not discounting the product because you're discounting the membership, right? So that's kind of a skirt around with it. Um, where if those two pieces of product were $19.99 a piece, 20 bucks, yeah. you might sell that membership for $30, Gotcha. Because yeah. you're getting 24 pieces with one sale. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. Where do you see um, the industry evolving in the next, say, 10 years, 10 to 20 years? What do you, what do you think, you know, some of the big changes we're going to see? Because, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been massive changes in the business model, which continue. And I, I certainly look at the U.S. as being uh, at the forerunner of those changes, whether you're looking at well, we've mentioned Amazon, uh, US-based company, um, but with a global presence now, or whether you're looking at the salon suite uh, business. I mean, that is, um, I don't know. I, well, I think it was started in the US. I certainly saw some early forerunners of it in Tokyo, but um, it, I, I'd suggest it's probably started in the US and it's certainly that's where all the traction is. And, and there's definitely the biggest movement for independent contractors there. And then on the retail side of things where we have, you know, the massive growth of stores like um, uh, Sephora or Ulta, you know, again, those sort of, you know, big, uh, you know, beauty department stores, you know, they're changing the face of salon retail. So, you know, these things sort of rarely have come out of nowhere over the last sort of, you know, 10, 15 years. Where where do you see it going? What what do you think the industry is going to look like in 10 years time? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of changes. Number one, I think with regard to the salon suites, I think they'll slow down. I don't think they'll ever go away. I think they'll slow down simply because I now see a change of those suite owners looking to move into their own ownership in a salon with additional employees or that they can't stand being on their own in a little cubicle all by themselves. 
right? So it takes away that team or social atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I think they'll always be there because there's always going to be um, somebody that just wants to set their own hours, do a couple clients, come and go, um, and, and, and that's it. So, But do I see them as a uh, continual growth model? No. I think there's going to be a saturation point, and then you're going to see a turn where you start seeing them shut down. Some of them, not all of them. Yeah. Um, and that's why they're based on franchises, right? Because typically franchises don't care about the individual salon. They just care about, care about the franchise bottom line. Sure. Um, you know, so, so it's not that, it's not that, you know, that, that close bond between an owner and a couple other salons. Sure. Okay, so, so that's where I see that industry going with product. I don't see the product market is changing much. I think we'll see a lot more technology involved. And I think the salons need to really, really level up their technology if they want to sell. Um, you know, eventually you're going to see membership models sold by these manufacturers. It's coming. I, I guarantee you it's coming. Um, you know, we now have a couple of hair color chains here in the United States um, who are shipping directly to the client at their home. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, yeah. Through a membership model, you know. So you've always got to be on not just catching up to technology, you got to be on the cutting edge. Yeah. So part of an owner's job is to A, either get a coach that knows this stuff like you or me or somebody else, or B, they've got to set time aside in their books to always be on the edge, right? Um, so if they don't see that, do that, then I see the business model for independent salon owners going to large corporate models because if they don't keep up and they don't run it and they run it like they used to run it when we had a lot of mom and pop shops, they're going to fail. They're going to go out of business. And I hate to say this because they have their life. This is one of the reasons I got into coaching. Most, most of these salon owners are independents and they put their blood and sweat into the place, including every dime they have, right? Yeah. So I don't want to see any of them fail. And this is kind of my passion. But you can't help everybody if they don't want to help themselves. Change is inevitable, and they need to make these changes as we're going, or they're going to fail. Mark my words, they're going to fail. You know, and like I said, I don't want to see that, but it's a fact. It's a fact. If you're running at a 0% profit margin without you being behind the chair, then you better make some changes yesterday. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I agree totally. So we need to we need to sort of look at wrapping up over the next five minutes or so. But um, sure. one thing I want to put to you is if, if you're a young, you know, I don't know, 25-year-old listening to this and you're thinking, um, I want to open my own salon, um, mm-hmm. what's three things that you would advise them to do? Um, number one, uh, to know their numbers before they get into the salon. You hear business plans all the time, but business plans are just a fancy book, not a real operational plan. Um, figure those numbers out way ahead of time. When I did the membership, it took me two years of putting stuff on paper before I was confident enough with the math to go ahead and launch. So they need to know every cost that it's going to cost, what their payroll is going to be based on the chairs they're going to run, all those types of things. So that's Number one, right? They need a proper business education. Number two, I would look at the technologies that is available out there and I would get the absolute top cutting edge, bleeding edge, whatever you want to call it, technology. You know, I would think about if I was going to have a front desk, I wouldn't have a front desk these days. I'd have a guest services coordinator walking around the salon like Ulta does when they when people are not doing stuff, they go and they sell product. I'd have a retail area in the front with multiple lines, like a smorgasbord, just like Ulta. And that person would be walking around with an iPad, booking appointments, selling product, interacting with the guests, yeah. right? Concierge, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Um, and, and that technology is available. So that that's another thing I would be do, doing. And the last thing is I would have a proper training program for my stylists. Um, most salons will run out and look for stylists with a book um, when they open, trying to recruit them from somebody else, take them. I'm a firm believer that you should train everybody up in your system from scratch. Um, stylists that come from, from another place typically have the habits of that other place, good or bad, and generally um, do not um, go along with a team environment. So bringing them up all new, I think, is, is a proper thing. If you need a couple in the beginning, that's fine. Um, but you've got to have a training program in place where you're constantly training employees 
so that when one leaves, you've automatically got a replacement. So building in your payroll, you've got to make that room that you know that there's an assistant on training at all times. Yeah. Those, that, that would be the best advice I could give for somebody going in new. Okay, fantastic advice. Uh, that's for someone going in new. I imagine it's going to be pretty much the same because my next, my last question was going to be, and what would three bits of advice be that you'd give to someone who was in business and who was struggling? Would it be pretty much the same thing or is there, or is there a fourth you'd want to add for that? No, no, no. So, so if you're in it struggling, number one, you've got to make change. You've got to recreate your payroll, get control over your current expenses, know them, right? We've got a free financial board uh, dashboard. I'll shoot over to you. We used to sell it for $199 and, um, but basically it shows a visual dashboard of your numbers and it has red, yellow, green gauges, and it'll show you if you're doing good or if you're doing bad, right? Those things you're, you're in red with, you need to fix them immediately. You need to make change. If you don't make change, the hamster wheel is going to run over you, right? So that, that, that's my second. Third, I would say I would absolutely implement memberships for the guaranteed income. Okay. All right. Well, Derek, you've been an absolute mine of information. I've got pages of, of, of notes that I haven't even got to, but uh, we've been talking for almost an hour. So uh, one thing I want to just wrap up with there and is, is, is whereabouts can people connect with you? What's your uh, social media handles or email address or whatever if someone wanted to reach out and find out more from you about uh, memberships or indeed any of the things that we've touched on today? So we've got several ways. Number one, and I, you're in our group. I've got a group of private salon owners, 6,000 salons. It's called Salon Owner Mastermind. Um, I'm always in there, or one of my admins is always in there from, from my company. Um, the second way is they can just get in touch with me directly, which is Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at SalonOps, which is S-A-L-O-N-O-P-S dot com. Okay. All right. Well, Derek Hull, thank you so much. You've been an absolute mine of information and uh, I really appreciate the fact that you've been uh, so generous sharing your thoughts on the industry and how you run uh, your very successful businesses. So uh, Derek Hull, thank you very much for being part of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. And thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.